Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Republican mega donor Harlan Crow has an extensive collection of Nazi memorabilia. We have such a fun show today. Slate's Dahlia Lithwick will walk us through the unprecedented ruling out of Texas that seeks to stop abortion pills from being sold nationwide. Then Congressman Maxwell Frost talks to us about the movement to curtail gun violence and what he's seeing in the protests in Tennessee. But first, we have former Senator Al Franken. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Al Franken. Well, thank you for having me back, Molly. I am delighted to have you back. I feel like you were a favorite guest of the podcast immediately. Oh, really? Okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. (laughs) I want to talk to you just about what's going on in the world, but I do think it is quite cool that you hosted The Daily Show. Was it great being back in a regular television spot, or would you prefer to be in the Senate? I'd prefer to be in the Senate, frankly, and regret resigning, and it tears me up all the time. You're not the only person who feels that way. Yeah, well, I know. It's just funny because I have grandchildren in New York, so I have a place on the Upper West Side, and I can't walk around the Upper West Side without. (laughs) Anyone who knows the Upper West Side of Manhattan knows why that's kind of funny. It happens everywhere, but (laughs) three or four people a block. Okay, anyway, so... um, Let's see what we're talking about. We're talking about The Daily Show, because I do think you're a versatile person who can be both a pundit and a senator, which is not many people. Yeah. Just you and Ted Cruz. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, it's funny is that Ted considers himself funny. (laughs) 
and he is not. <laughs> and every right. once in a while, he would come up to me and say, I've written a joke for my stump speech, and I think my crowd will love it. Can I run it by you? And I'd go like, okay, and sure. And he'd start this joke, and this is 2016. He's running for president. Hillary's on the other side, of course. And he starts his joke, and I'm going, mm-hmm, 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 long setup. And I go, oh, okay, the punchline's <laughs> going to be Hillary's phone. I got it. Then more more setup, more setup. Finally, Hillary's phone. And I go, okay, your crowd will laugh at that, but I have to tell you, I knew what the punchline was about a third of the way through the setup. Okay, you tell me a joke. <laughs> and then he, he'd get mad at me. I'm sorry, but I am without words because that is what I would assume hanging out with Ted Cruz would be like. It was amazing. He's so unlikable in so many ways that it's just kind of amazing. And he's very smart, but not smart enough to understand how he comes off and what's wrong with him. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Very odd. It's very odd. (laughs) So speaking of Republicans not understanding how they come off to the rest of the world, Tennessee State House, they expel the two black people, but not the white person. The white woman. Yes. So I think that puts a lie to the sexism thing. <laughs> well, I don't know what it does, but pretty incredible stuff. Right? No, it was... Uh... It's such a lie. It was about, they compared it to January 6th, of course. And this was just kind of a little protest about not taking up guns. In schools. In schools. While these kids are there in the balconies. And after three kids died, three teachers died. And God, it was ugly. And that's the Republican Party now. If you look right now, this past week in Wisconsin, they have an election inside the balance of finally of the Supreme Court. There are a lot of stakes there in a whole bunch of things, redistricting, of course, abortion, of course. And the Democrat or the progressive wins very handily, like by a lot. Ten points. Yeah. And this is the definition of a purple state. But this is in big part about abortion. But also, this is the most gerrymandered state. You remember that 2010 was a census year. And so in 2010, there was a big vote for Republicans because of all the lying about the Affordable Care Act. We had passed the Affordable Care Act in the Senate and House, and they lied about it. Death panels, et cetera, et cetera. And also, no one knew what was in the act, really didn't understand it. And it took four years, really, to get the thing up. So we had four years of being battered on that thing, and especially that year. And they picked up all these seats and gerrymandered the crap out of the state. Right. To the point where I think I have this right. Ben Wickler is the chairman of the Democratic Party and a very good friend of mine. I think he said it's like if the vote is 50-50, they have only a 10% chance of getting the majority. That's not wrong. It's worse than that. It's an amazingly gerrymandered state. And I should add that statistic right at my fingers, but I don't. 
But it was gerrymandered in 11, and this court will be able to address that. And also abortion is on that. Yeah. I mean, it is just kind of incredible. And Republicans are talking about impeaching her. There are, I think, a couple. I'm not sure if it's as uh, bad as... <laughs> is what's happening in Tennessee. Yeah, yes. that's what's <laughs> happened in Tennessee. Yeah. yeah. It's so interesting, though, because you do see this collision between this base that is ready to just do crazy shit and the leadership, which is starting to be like, hmm, maybe people don't like our message. Yeah, but boy, doesn't leadership take a long time to get that message? And sometimes the leadership are the problem, too. Yeah. I mean, if you look now at the House in in Washington, McCarthy, either he played that as stupidly as you could play it, the vote to be speaker, or these awful, awful, awful people played it as brilliantly as they could play it, or it just accidentally happened this way. But he is beholden to every one of them. One person can bring it up, right? And new vote. And so he is, brings me to the debt limit. That's the thing I'm most scared about. Yeah. I went through that in 11, and we went to more than the 11th hour, and it hurt. We got our bonds downgraded, and the dollar is the default currency of the world. And if we go over the cliff on this, it could cause a worldwide recession. Yeah. And we did. They downgraded the American. Yeah, S&P did. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like kind of an incredible thing to think about that that could happen. That's right. They downgraded it in 11 after that. And because we came so close to the edge. And these guys are crazier than the Republicans that were there in 11. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I feel like these guys make the Tea Party look like just lovely <laughs> gentlemen. But I am curious to know, I mean, if you think about all these Republicans that won in these swingy districts, do you think there's a world in which any of those guys go and make a deal or you think they're just too scared of primary challenges? I don't know. You'd think so, because I think there's more than four or five of them. Right. No, but I mean, they have a five seat majority. I understand, but that's what I'm saying. I think there are more than four or five of these moderates that are sane Republicans who they're sane. They probably won in fairly purple districts. And so I think they'd be screwed if they don't save the country. So I don't know how that body works, especially that group there, but they sure hope they come together and that McCarthy works it out so that oh, I couldn't help it. These guys, that's what they're doing. And we got to come up with a compromise. Yeah, it does certainly seem like Republicans have gotten themselves into a situation here that they can't. There doesn't seem like an easy way out for them. No, but this is why we have to change that, because in 11, we bargained with them. Right. And we got the sequester and right this is 11. We're still in the Great Recession. And the last thing you needed to do was to spend less money. <laughs> and that's what happened. So this is all kind of part of Republicans' plan was, well, let's slow down at this recovery. Yeah. So that we can win in 12. And McConnell, and they all did that. So they backed us into a corner and we can't do that this time. We can say, nope, we're just not negotiating on this. If you want to negotiate on a package to bring things down, you got to do it, but not tied to this. Yeah. And I don't know what they'll do. So we'll see. 
Yeah, I mean, it just seems really kind of epically bad. Biden has continually overperformed in all these elections, but this polling that came out yesterday, not super great. I mean, does it even matter? I mean, what do you? I, I didn't see the polling. Is the top line was, and again, this is a question that is when you ask this question, everyone always says no, they don't deserve it. But basically, only a third of Americans. Again, I hate even saying this because I feel like polls are a very a sort of. A, I don't even know what they are at this point. 33%, about a third, think that he deserves to be reelected. Well, um, he's going to be running against somebody. Right. We see how many people believe they need another term if it's Trump. And that, I think, would be below that. But it could be somebody else. And we shall see. And we'll see how things are at that moment. But again, we outperformed this last midterm better than he did anyway, or his side better than anybody except Bush after 9-11. So in the wake of 9-11, of course, Bush did well. And FDR in 34 after saving the country, perceiving to have saved the country uh, from the depression. Other than those two, our party form the best it has historically. So everyone was predicting this red tide and it didn't happen. So this is too far out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are you looking at right now? What are sort of your thoughts of where we are right now? My thoughts are that the Republican Party is becoming a party that does not believe in democracy. And, And you're seeing that in all these cases in Wisconsin, attempt to recall someone elected yesterday. <laughs> That's unusual. Tennessee voting out members for nothing. In Georgia, there are state legislators who want to pass something where legislature can get rid of DAs. Yeah. And so Fonnie Willis being, I guess, the one they would first get rid of. (laughs) That seems very slanted, doesn't it? Yeah. And in North Carolina, there was just a flip of a Democrat who comes from pretty Democratic area and has been a Democrat forever to give the North Carolina state legislature Republicans a veto proof majority. And evidently she got a bigger office and some other committee chairmanship or something. Unbelievable. She has gotten an abortion herself and has pledged to protect abortion rights. So North Carolina now is the only southeastern state that allows abortions. So that's a pretty important thing to keep an eye on. But I just it feels like the Republican Party just is way out of the ordinary in terms of respecting democracy and how they go about getting power. Yeah, I I have to say, I think it's kind of shocking. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about this ProPublica reporting. I feel like this is not... The son, Thomas? Yeah. Well, we kind of knew this stuff was happening. Sheldon Whitehouse has been talking about this forever. Didn't we know that they were paying for your hunting lodge? I mean, didn't Scalia die at a <laughs> yes, hunting lodge? that was owned by a Republican donor, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's like so... Oh, it doesn't matter whether the donor is a multi-billionaire or just a simple billionaire. I mean, what difference does that make? And does it matter that it was a free stay at a lodge for 10 days and they had foie gras (laughs) or it was only eight days and they just ate the pheasant (laughs) that the help cleaned? Simple man. I mean, I'm not quite sure what the 
differences other than they changed the rules. So he had to come clean. He had to report this. So I know there's other reasons for him to (laughs) resign, (laughs) including being the only vote to try to block his wife's tweets. (laughs) Seemed pretty bad. So I'm not sure about this one. I think we kind of knew this was going on. I don't know if we knew the price tag and the scope and how many. And that he doesn't like to fly commercial and that he perhaps doesn't vacation Who does like to fly commercial if they have a choice? It's just most people don't have a choice. And he, it seems like he does. He does. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Congratulations, Clarence Thomas. I don't know. Does she go hunting? I doubt it. She was plotting something. Who was she talking to? Didn't she? Isn't there a latest tweet to Meadows that has some nutcase shit in it? Yes. I have to say she is my favorite unhidden spouse. Like when we go through history, I mean, everything you go in there is just completely beyond the pale. But I think that Ginny Thomas will win the title of most unhinged Supreme Court spouse. Yeah, I don't know the other ones. (laughs) Well, there you go. Yeah, I think Robert's spouse evidently makes a lot of money recruiting lawyers for big firms to clerk. I mean, it's kind of ugly, isn't it? It doesn't seem like they're beyond politics now. It doesn't seem right. (laughs) Well, this is a feminist thing. Supreme Court wives should be able to have a business funneling lawyers to firms. (laughs) That will someday argue in front of her husband. Yeah, powerful people have uh, powerful friends. Is that what she said or something like that? (laughs) Or very accomplished people have very accomplished friends. Al Franken... I just, you are just as as light. I hope you will come back. Eh, maybe. <laughs> I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, guys. I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. 
Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, this idea of what, is is that my baggage? look like my baggage. I mean, I know... Okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dahlia Lithwick is a senior editor at Slate and the author of Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Welcome back to Fast Politics, my personal hero and the person I want to talk to most at this moment, Dahlia. Hi, Molly. (laughs) (laughs) I saw this ruling and I wrote to Jesse. I was in an AA meeting last night and I wrote to Jesse, right, because it was nighttime. And I was like, what the fuck? And then I said, we have to talk to Dahlia. I was getting in an Uber to go to, (laughs) wait for it, Depeche Mode with my two teenage sons and my husband. And I spent the entire concert reading the opinion and sobbing silently as my boys jumped up and down delightedly beside me. So they sure do know how to wreck a weekend down there in Amarillo. (laughs) I mean, they really do. So, I mean, will you just remind our listeners a little bit about how the anti-choice crew really strategically went to this judge and set this whole thing up? Yeah, I mean, this is part of a new phenomenon. We always used to have sort of venue shopping, which is you'd file your lawsuit in a place where you were more likely than not (laughs) to pull the kinds of judges you wanted. This is a brand new iteration of that, Molly. It's judge shopping. So in this particular jurisdiction in Amarillo, Texas, your chance of drawing this one judge are 100 percent he's the only it's like a vending machine like you put in your quarter 
you get a Snickers bar every time. And so <laughs> this case, which has nothing to do whatsoever with Amarillo, Texas, gets filed there because the folks who are seeking to end medication abortion nationwide know that this is a lifelong person who's worked in the trenches alongside them. He's going to not just be the Snickers bar they want, he's also going to give them precisely what they want. And so that's it. This case has no connection to Amarillo beyond that. So I want to ask you a little more about this. So he, we knew this ruling was coming. He had made machinations to that effect, but we, he had said he was going to wait, right? Wait for his order to be, he, you mean, which part are we asking? He was sort of waiting around to do it. We sort of knew this was coming. We had this long four-hour hearing where he pretended to do all this chin stroking about how complicated <laughs> this was. And it was just, especially Especially now, if you read the opinion he wrote, which I suspect he wrote like in law school or when he was actually working for one of these groups, there was no thought put into this. In other words, he was not open to arguments on both sides. All of the kabuki around, oh, this is really tricky and I have serious issues with <laughs> declaiming for the first time <laughs> that I can withdraw FDA approval. Like that was just all a bunch of bunk because this really is, I mean, one of the things that's depressing about the opinion, Molly, in addition to the fact that it's ridiculous, is that it's just not even original ridiculousness. It's cutting right. and pasting from radical, rabid, religious pro-life groups, pre-existing ridiculous. Like, be creative, dude. Do one line in this that is, you know, interesting <laughs> and novel, but it's just right. hackneyed stuff about, you know, all these debunked stuff about maternal suicide. Everything that he says is debunked. And, and I think maybe the other thing that's really striking about this and maybe hasn't gotten quite enough attention is he goes way farther than Justice Alito would go, even in Dobbs, to kind of lay the seeds for fetal personhood, right? To say there's right. this astonishing footnote where he he says, jurists use the word, quote, fetus to inaccurately <laughs> identify unborn humans. And he goes on to say throughout the, the um, thing that he's going to use unborn human or unborn child, which is all Jesus. laying the groundwork for the kind of thing even Sam Alito wasn't brave enough to do in Dobbs, which is to suggest that this is human life. It starts at conception and that even states that allow abortion are participating in murder. Wow. Yeah. I have a question for you about something I read yesterday, and I can't remember where I read it, but the sort of thesis was there are federal judges and there are Trump judges. Do you think these Trump judges are just sort of operate, you know, that they're not bound by the same conventions that normal, quote unquote, politicians were, normal, quote unquote, jurists were? Yeah, I think that that's happening around the country, that we are seeing Trump judges and Judge Kazmarek is by no means the only one who are really outside the bounds of the kinds of norms that, say, a Bush judge or, you know, uh, uh, even a Reagan judge uh, is at least somewhat bound by notions of, you know, what the rule of law means, what precedent means, you know, caring at least somewhat 
that right. uh, the integrity and the reputational interests of the courts are protected. And then you just get Trump judges who are not all of them, but many of them seemingly raised in like underground labs to break <laughs> shit. And that's just what we have. And so there's no regard for, you know, in this case, this guy has no authority. There is absolutely no authority for one lone district court judge to countermand 23 years of FDA approval. This is the same judge, by the way, who like gave himself the authority to micromanage President Biden's policies in Mexico, international law. So I think right. there is a difference. And, and part of it is, I guess I would just say a self-reinforcing loop because these guys are not just breaking things. They're also auditioning for higher courts. And what right. they know is if they wave their arms around in the air and say, no, I'm the craziest of them all, it's a sure rocket to be at a circuit court and someday if they're lucky to be on the Supreme Court. So this is entirely lawless, but it's also freakishly rewarded in the way that FedSoc promotes these people. Right. It's such an interesting phenomenon. It does strike me that it is a similar phenomenon of what you're seeing with the Marjorie Taylor Greens, right? Like these these zealous Republicans who ha are being rewarded for being as crazy as possible. Right. That's George Santos, right? You just, right. you crime. Right, right, right. It's not just failing up. You like crime up. Like the more crime <laughs> they find, the more they lavish, you know, plaudits on you. And it's so weird. And it's also, you know, it's kind of antithetical to the way even like... I'm thinking of like Justice Scalia. In fact, this is like probably a good se segue to Clarence Thomas. But even Justice Scalia was capable of shame, right? When Antonin Scalia right. goes like duck hunting with Dick Cheney while Cheney's right, right. a party to a suit in front of him, at least Justice Scalia has the good grace to like try to defend himself and be sort of sheepish and say like, dude, I know this looks bad, but let me explain why we weren't in the same duck blind. So it's OK. But Clarence Thomas <laughs> is like this whole whole new flavor of like, oh, hell yeah, I took a half a million dollars worth of like lavish vacations and yacht rides and plane rides to Indonesia. And I do it again. And that's what's different is the utter lack of shame. That is what I want to talk to you about, because so we had this blockbuster reporting from ProPublica, leftist rag ProPublica, I saw Oh, that was uh, Byron York saying it's a leftist rag. If the truth is leftist, then ProPublica is leftist. With this reporting, basically, I mean, I think like the most evocative moment in the whole thing is they got the photos from Instagram. So it's not like people were hiding this, right? But Clarence Thomas has a billionaire friend. He vacations with him to the tune of half a million dollars a year. He hasn't been documenting any of this. But again, there aren't larger ethics rules for these justices, right? There are ethics rules. There are canons of ethics and statutes that apply to every Article Three federal judge. The problem is the Supreme Court doesn't apply them to itself. The, the nine justices <laughs> on the court have persuaded themselves in the country that their own excellent awesomeness is such <laughs> that, and I think the word that John Roberts used is, I love this, we consult the rules. 
us, you know, like the way you consult a map or, you know, Yelp. So they consult them and then they apply them to themselves and then they there's no way to enforce them. And and the other thing that I think is so important, it's one of the reasons I was psyched to talk to you about this story, is there's a kind of everything all at once vibe here because that photograph of Harlan Crow, right? Sit with sit, right. sit with that awesome knives out name. He and <laughs> Clarence Thomas and what? Uh, Leonard Leo, right? The head of the right. Federalist Society. You, got, you'll rem- <laughs> right. You'll remember him from season one. <laughs> you may remember yeah. him from I Bought the Federal Judiciary and then got <laughs> right. exactly. a billion dollars to do it again. And right. like Mark Pauletta, right? Who is working right. in the Trump administration, <laughs> but insists that he's reimbursed his travel. And these guys are sitting around and we're to believe, A, that they don't discuss <laughs> cases. I guess right. they're just <laughs> discussing season one, but then more like unbelievably that this is all like totally fine. This is normal and that we should just agree to this because Clarence Thomas tells us it's fine. And also he tells us in a statement on Friday, which he never explains. So the fact that he tried to even justify this is so funny. And he's like, oh yeah, dude, when I came on the court, I asked some people and they said it was fine. Right. So (laughs) here's a text who says you have to read every word of the statute so that it is plain meaning is manifestly true. And he's like, yeah, no, I don't read the statutes. I just asked some people and they said I could fly around on jets. And it's just so snot out your nose funny that they have constructed this world in which Clarence Thomas, right, is sitting on the court when Citizens United opens the spigot for dark money, right? That's dark money that goes to Ginny Thomas. (laughs) He's sitting on the court when when it decides Shelby County, right, that does away with the Voting Rights Act, that does away with, you know, any check on partisan gerrymandering in the Rucho case. So Clarence Thomas is literally being paid to construct the America we live in now. And that's the America that can throw legislators from Tennessee out of the House because it's a gerrymandered supermajority. Like he built this. He built this. Yeah, it's unfucking believable. I want to talk about this Washington D. judge who issued a dueling injunction prohibiting the FDA from pulling Mifepristone off the market. I mean, I think what it does, my colleague uh, Mark Joseph Stern put up an amazing piece Friday night saying it essentially sets up a constitutional crisis because Yay. Judge uh, Kazmarek's order, right, says right. you have one week, at which point we have to pull a drug from the market. It's done, right? There's no mifepristone left. And then you have a dueling injunction from this judge in Washington state who says, actually, I'm going to compel the FDA to keep allowing mifepristone in the, the 17 states and the and the district, so 18 jurisdictions, that had brought this separate suit in Washington. So now you have essentially got a situation where the FDA is being ordered to do two things that cannot both be done. Right. They either need to suspend the drug nationwide or they need to preserve access to the drug in these 18 jurisdictions that have prevailed in Washington state and they can't do them. And so immediately you have a situation where we don't know what they're going to do. There's really good thinking on whether you even can compel a the FDA to do anything. It's actually no authority for a judge. To, there's If the FDA is going to withdraw 
a drug, it has to go by its own regulations and processes. So it's not even clear that this could happen. But we really are in a situation now where, say, this rockets up to the Fifth Circuit. That's the jurisdiction that controls appeals from Texas. It rockets up to the Ninth Circuit, right? That's the the jurisdiction that's going to have to look at a Washington state decision. And then what happens? You have two conflicting appellate court opinions. So there's this other crazy problem, which is in addition to the FDA not knowing what the hell it's meant to do next week, we have the problem of the Supreme Court is about to enter its last month of oral argument. The term's over. So what are they going to do? Are they going to list this? Come back from vacation? (laughs) Never. (laughs) Are they going to list it for next fall? Are they going to do this on their like emergency shadow docket the way they did SBA? You remember they did the vigilante bill? They're like, oh, it's two in the morning. I guess we'll write some sentences. So like there's no good option for the Supreme Court to resolve this. And this is in some sense, like very seriously, the kind of definition of a constitutional crisis where you have dueling entities that have authority over something and they're both pushing you to do different things. Could be right. Yep. Right. So we now I want to add another wrinkle to this constitutional crisis. Senator Ron Wyden, there is no way this decision has a basis in law. It is instead rooted in conservatives' dangerous and undemocratic takeover of our country's institutions. So the FDA doctors and pharmacies can and must go about their jobs like nothing has changed and keep methophistone available to the women across America. If they don't, the consequences of banning the most common method of abortion in every single state will be devastating. And we're seeing this again, and it, we're, we're also seeing Democratic governors say that they're just gonna, that these Republicans can go fuck themselves. I mean, does this add a wrinkle? It strikes me that this adds a wrinkle. Yeah, it's exactly the same problem. Governor Jay Inslee in Washington state did the same thing earlier this week. He knew that Judge Kazmarek's ruling was coming. So he just announced that Washington state had purchased 30,000 doses of mifepristone uh, as an insurance policy. And he's just, and then he stockpiled another 10,000 doses and they went through the Department of Corrections in their state and was like, stop me, come get me. And so this starts to feel, right? This starts to feel like massive resistance. It starts to feel, yeah. And the other thing, you know, AOC said this, I think um, on TV on Friday night, again, you can't cannot force the FDA, there's no jurisdiction for one sitting district court judge in Amarillo to force the FDA to withdraw a drug. There's just no mechanism to do it. And so I think that this kind of ignore, ignore, ignore strategy both signals what feels like lawlessness. That's what you're asking me, Molly. Like, are people going to just nullify this? That's kind of scary. But there's a way in which, like, if he actually doesn't have the jurisdiction or the authority to do this, then what the hell are you going to do to comply? And so it's another, you're exactly right that it sort of sends us down this nihilist path of we all choose our own legal ending. Right. (laughs) It does seem like a larger problem of like, what are we going to live in 50 different countries? Right. And also, I I know you and I talked about this after Dobbs, but this other problem where the uncertainty is the point, right? Like the big winner 
post SB8, post Dobbs. In so many of these contexts, the big winner is uncertainty because when you have doctors, for instance, we're hearing like fleeing Texas, right? I can't be a gynecologist in Texas. You're seeing hospitals closing around the country, clinics that don't know what to do. That's all just the fruit of I don't know what the law is and I can't take a chance that I'm going to go to jail or that I'm going to, you know, face hundreds and thousands of dollars of fines. And so part of the, I don't want to say beauty because it's a horror show, but the elegance of what they are doing post-Dobbs is just sowing the seeds of nobody knows what the law is because everybody gets to do what they want. And the people who suffer in moments when uncertainty prevails and nobody knows how to protect themselves and that caregivers don't know what the law is and you know Uber drivers don't know and kids don't know if they can drive someone across state lines, right? What prevails is this total massive doubt and that means the most vulnerable people are the ones who suffer most and those are the stories we're seeing. Right. And that's what they've always wanted. I just want to ask you one last question. I don't want to be hopeful because the Supreme Court does truly suck, but they (laughs) refuse to rule on the trans athlete banned out of West Virginia. And the three Trumpy justices said they weren't going to weigh in. I mean, and the dissent was, of course, the two worst members of the court, Thomas and Alito. Did that make you a little bit hopeful that they're they know they're over their skis? I spent Friday night in that with Depeche Mode, admittedly <laughs> ringing in my ears um, <laughs> in that like liminal space. Hold me, Justice Kavanaugh. Hold me, Justice Barrett. Like <laughs> you keep telling me you're moderates, right? Justice Kavanaugh was so, so, so sanctimonious in his Dobbs concurrence where he was like, oh, wow, you know, this is really tricky. And I'm certainly not saying that people can't cross state lines and far be it from me to say that, you know, we could criminalize. So I suppose now we're in this completely tragic moment where we are relying on the shame response of Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. And so what you're asking me is this unanswerable question about whether they're prepared to do now what they wouldn't do in Dobbs, which is say the quiet parts loud, which is say, yes, we want to make abortion illegal from conception around the country. And if we have to use the 1873 Comstock Act, We'll do it. I don't know. I literally don't know what the answer is in in a very creepy way. And I'm going to say something that's going to freak you out. What scares me about this moment we're in is that the more we anger Clarence Thomas and the more we anger Brett Kavanaugh, the more we say things like, wow, his concurrence in Dobbs was full of crap, the more likely we are to get a bad outcome. Right. It's real abuser stuff. Abuser. Exactly. And we're in this classic abuser moment where I guess my answer to your question has to be yes, Molly. I am certain that in the fullness of time and their infinite wisdom, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Brett Kavanaugh are going to realize that they don't want people to die on tables of sepsis because of their ruling. But do I believe that? 
But how long does that take? Who knows? It's it's very weird. And this is the problem with like, you know, unchecked infinite power to get back to Clarence Thomas. Like if we really, really want a good result in these medication abortion cases, I think what we're supposed to do is say that they're awesome and turn a blind eye to their misconduct. <laughs> All of this is a loser for Republicans, right? Like people hate it. People hate the idea that you can arrest a grandmother for taking her granddaughter to get an abortion. Like this is not popular. Like those swing statey voters don't like the handman's tail stuff. They may not be pro-choice, but they don't like whatever this is. I mean, do you think that these guys, these three Trumpy justices have sort of been like, we don't want to completely screw over the Republican Party or you think they just don't care? I mean, I think this is back to my slightly dispiriting everything everywhere all at once answer, which is, I think if you look at what happened in Tennessee this week, which is we don't care how people vote. This is not about vote suppression. This is about stripping power of duly elected people with authority to act, right? And I think this is where um, Cheryl and Eiffel wrote this kind of chilling piece for us at Slate a few weeks ago saying, when they say we're going to make it impossible for the Wisconsin Supreme Court duly elected to rule on voting or abortion, when they say we in Georgia are going to make it impossible for Fonnie Willis, duly elected, to bring this. What they're doing is saying this is way beyond vote suppression. This is way beyond gerrymandering. This is actually stripping democratically elected folks of their power. And the reason it's relevant to this conversation is that I deeply, deeply believe that even if 60, 70, 80 percent of voters hate this, these anti-abortion moves and want, for instance, you know, rape exceptions and want uh, doctors to make the decisions and not hospital boards, it almost doesn't matter if you can suppress their votes. And what we are seeing, I think, is a really existential, and I don't use that word lightly, foot race between pro-democracy, right? Students who want gun control and people who hate Dobbs and people who are fighting for one person, one vote, you know, fighting radical gerrymanders on the one hand. And then you're seeing this vote suppression that's happening on such a large scale that it's not even vote suppression anymore. It's democracy suppression. And what scares me is that I think the Supreme Court, because, you know, I just rattled off those cases, Citizens United, Shelby County, Rucho, they're in the vote suppression business, Molly. That's how they do it. Right. No, it's true. Thank you so much for joining us. On a weekend, I appreciate you. If I were a better person, I'd sing us out with some <laughs> grim, voicey Depeche mode, but I, I'm not that person. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You're amazing. Congressman Maxwell Alejandro Frost represents Florida's 10th Congressional District. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Congressman Maxwell Frost. Thank you so much for having me on. We're delighted to have you back. I want to talk to you about this movement of young legislators. Um are just it's just exploding around you yeah i mean you know young legislators young activists organizers i mean you know you see what's going on in tennessee right now that's which what I was is thinking. yeah which is both incredibly sad but also when you see the response to just the horrible things going on in terms of guns and violence and then obviously these three 
lawmakers that may be expelled. I think the vote is this morning. I think it's happening right now. Most people know, but just can you explain how you got into politics? Because I feel like it dovetails so nicely with what's happening right now. Yeah. So I got involved in politics because of gun violence. It was the Sandy Hook shooting that really put me into action. It was my call to action. After seeing what had happened, I went to DC. I was 15 years old. I went to the memorial that was going on. I had found someone online named Sarah Clements. She was a leader with the Junior Newtown Action Alliance. And her mother was actually a teacher at Sandy Hook. Her mother survived the shooting, but her mom was a teacher there. And so I connected with Sarah and I just kind of sent her a message on Facebook and said, hey, you know, I'd love to be involved. And she sent me a Google form for the trip. I applied. My parents signed a waiver and I went over 15 years old and really being there with the students um, and the families uh, who had lost loved ones and lost their children in the shooting. It really changed everything. And the moment for me was I was sitting across from Matthew Soto, who lost his sister Vicky in the shooting, and just seeing as someone who's 16 with the demeanor of someone who's 60, talking about his sister was murdered for just going to school that morning. I ran straight to my hotel room. I was crying. I called my mom. My mom's a teacher of 37 years. And I, you know, said, I want to fight for a world where no one has to feel that way. And, you know, you get it for one reason, you feel you find out there's a lot of problems. And um, but that's where I personally dedicated myself being a part of this fight. And it grows and changes as you get into it because you find out about all the different issues and how they're connected. But gun violence is really the issue that put me into action. So right now, here you are. Are you the youngest member of Congress ever now? No. So, I mean, in the 1800s and stuff. (laughs) Exactly. So in the 1800s, you know, there was like 21-year-old members of Congress and stuff. (laughs) So not ever, but I am the youngest right now. And I do believe one of your favorite people was actually maybe a month or two younger than me when he was elected. Who's that? Madison Cawthorn. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Very nice. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, so mean. Um, I wanted to ask you, here you are in Congress now. We had you on this podcast right after you got elected. You have probably had a pretty steep learning curve. Tell us what has really surprised you about Congress. Honestly, I would say there's two things. Number one is just how partisan the operation of Congress is, because I feel like a lot of times we would attribute how partisan Congress is just to like people, you know, the media and people, you know, they take the wildest person from one side and the wildest person from the other side and put them on the TV. And, you know, that's all part of it. But really, I mean, when you go to Congress itself, for instance, you go to orientation, you're only with your your the people from the other side for the morning when you are in class and you're trying to listen and, you know, figure out how to be a member of Congress. So you're not really talking much. And then after lunch, you are completely separated by party for the rest of the day. And that's every day in orientation. And then once you get in the Congress, you're so busy. And anytime you're with, you know, other members, you're on the floor, you're sitting on separate sides of the aisle. You have different, you know, cloakrooms, which the cloakroom is like the kind of like a break room that's there for when we're voting. And uh, you really have to go out of the way for for that kind of bipartisanship. And so it's just interesting. And it was a little surprising to me. The other thing I'd say is I'm still getting used to the schedule and the pace. And what I mean by that is I've always worked pretty long hours working on campaigns and even um, as a candidate, right? Like as a candidate, I was working 12 to 16 hours a day. But the difference now is... I'm working the same hours, but 
it's like 20 minute increments of completely different subjects and you're using a lot of a lot more brain power because on a campaign you're just thinking about winning knocking doors or raising money in office you're thinking about a million different priorities and so i joke around that on the campaign i'd come home and i'd be exhausted and now i come home and i'm exhausted and my head hurts Do you have any hopes that there can be a sort of bipartisan? I mean, you're going to we're going to hit the debt ceiling and there's going to have to be something bipartisan happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate that Republican leadership wants to use the debt ceiling to kind of negotiate on the budget, especially because I don't think people fully understand that. I mean, the us hitting the debt ceiling and defaulting on our debt. You know, that that doesn't sound worse than the government shutdown, but it's actually much worse than a government shutdown. Right. We're looking at ways we can help educate our constituents on kind of what's going on as we get close to this, because it, it will be serious. Like people will see serious cuts to, you know, things like Social Security and et cetera. And it's, I think it's okay to keep that in mind. So we'll see what happens. I mean, like, you know, the Freedom Caucus came out and said there will be no discussion unless it involves major cuts. And obviously we're not, you know, we, we can't have like 20% cuts across the board. We can't have, you know, the numbers of 20, uh, 2020 numbers for the budget. It's just, it's just like, it won't work and people are going to feel it at home. And so we'll have to see where it goes. But yeah, I mean, it's going to have to be done in a bipartisan way because we need to have the approval from the House of Representatives. Well, and also, I mean, they're the worst bad faith actors going. Exactly. Number one, I mean, some would argue that we should, the debt ceiling shouldn't even exist. I'm one of those people. It's really just a political tool. So we have this kind of near explosion every year that causes unneeded anxiety and gives people an opportunity to kind of hold the whole country hostage to what? What do you want to cut? Snap? You know, like, Jesus. Well, they would like to cut Snap. (laughs) So Yeah, no. Yeah. Why do you think, I want to get into this idea for a second. So you have all these people who voted for Trump, non-college educated whites who would actually benefit from and and often are on SNAP or on Obamacare. And I mean, I think like my favorite discourse was that, you know, the people who after they elected Trump were like, well, I'm on ACA. So, you know, I'm on I'm not on Obamacare. I'm on the other thing, which is Obamacare. I mean, do you I mean, why do you think Democrats have so much trouble appealing to those people when they are basically all they want to do is help those people? I've been talking a lot about this difference between politics and policy. And I think a good case study for it is in Florida, Yeah. where if you look at Florida and look at our ballot initiatives, over 70 percent of our voters said yes to medical marijuana, voting rights for people with previous felonies and a $15 minimum wage. And if you look at the polling, most Floridians want to codify the right to an abortion, are not for permitless carry, and want adult use marijuana. So it's interesting because in terms of policy, you're actually a pretty progressive state. But then when you introduce politics, then things look a little different. And that's why someone like DeSantis couldn't win with a 20-point margin past November. But you know, but but we have a good chance of passing passing these progressive ballot initiatives because it's policy versus politics. You know, that's also why anytime Ron DeSantis speaks, he's never talking about policy because he knows it's very un- his policy is unpopular. He's talking about woke and right. you know whatever the hell that is, and, and that's kind of what he focuses on because that's the bread and butter, the politics of all of it. So it's very interesting to kind of break it down like that, and I think you can break it down like that on the national scale. 
You know, our policies that we have as Democrats and progressives, it's the most popular thing. Um, it, it is the most popular policy. But it seems like sometimes we have trouble connecting that policy to people's day to day life and telling the story of policy. The other thing is we oftentimes are obsessed with giving people something to vote against and not giving people something to vote for. I mean, if you look at what happened in Florida, Republicans would set up this trap where they're like, you're a socialist, communist, defund the police, whatever. And they say that about you, whether you're a moderate or progressive, don't matter. If you're a Democrat, they say it about you. And then Democrats in Florida spent, you know, would spend their media budget saying, no, I'm not. And I'm just not sure, no, I'm not, is a winning message. And so I think we should just really focus in on what we're fighting for, what it means, how it can work for people and not be afraid of those kind of North Star bold solutions that, yeah, I might not pass next year, but it excites people to think about the future that's possible. We just got to be honest. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that I'm so struck by. And when you talk about these ballot initiatives, ballot initiatives do incredibly well. I mean, they do so well that conservatives want to make the bar for them 60 percent and not 50 percent because they know, you know, that the people are much more liberal than politically than their ideas. I mean, exactly. Yeah, that I mean, it's just such an interesting and important thing. And I want to talk to you about the elections this week, because there were two, you know, in the minutes that were not eaten up by Trump getting indicted there, the Republican frontrunner getting indicted, there were two huge wins for progressives. Talk to me about Chicago. I'm curious what your take on that is. Yeah, I mean, very, very exciting what happened in Chicago. And I think you have your classic progressive. No, (laughs) the interesting thing is, I think a lot of times we want to boil this down to progressive versus moderate, because maybe that's what we're used to or or whatever. But I, 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 I think it's much more than that. I mean, obviously, you have a progressive and you have someone who's more who's more of a moderate in the race. But a lot of this, I, I'm just not convinced that most voters walk into a voting booth and go, who's the progressive? Who's right. the moderate? Right. I mean, I think there's a group of people who do that, like, you know, maybe the people who are very politically involved. But I think most working people go in and, t- and think about who have I heard from, who said things that I believe in, who's inspired me, who's spoken to what I'm going through, that sort of thing. And I think what we saw is, you know, someone like Mayor Alexis, Brandon Johnson, who comes from union, who comes from labor, who um, is progressive and who was talking about a better Chicago for everyone. It was building that vision with everyone along the campaign trail. And I think that type of campaign is so engaging. And that type of campaign brings people together from different walks of life that you want that to be the future of your city or of wherever you live. The campaign itself is like a canvas where you can paint the future of whatever place you're running for. And so if you have an exciting campaign that talks about a bold future, that talks about policies that people actually believe in, then people will will take that energy and bring it to the voting booth. I think you saw with Brandon Johnson, who, you know, I, I tweeted about this. A big topic of discussion in this in that race was crime. Nobody likes crime. You know, right. nobody wants to, no one wants crime. Let me just say that straight up. Everyone has different ideas on how we deal with it. But, you know, our country has had a kind of tough on crime mentality for a long time and nothing's really gotten better in terms of crime. And I think we have groups of people who are saying, well, look, we have uh, being tough on crime. Why don't we just be 
smart on crime. And, and that doesn't mean there's no accountability for crime. It means let's also look at the root causes that push people to commit a crime. How do we be, how do we have preventative measures, not reactionary ones? It's the same conversation with gun violence because people want to talk about, you know, ending gun violence. And it's like, well, yeah, let's talk about what we do after like a group of freaking school kids get mowed down by an AR-15. Sure. But I'm more interested in talking about how we make sure that those kids are alive and that never happened. So I I just don't know. And this is something within the Democratic Party, too, why Democrats have a hard time using the same logic for all crime. And it's like, what what are the preventative measures? Gun control or gun violence prevention, universal background checks. Those are preventative measures. So. It's, it, you know, it's kind of a, you know, a debate of, I guess, ideology and policy. But like, let's apply that same line of thinking that most Democrats are for gun violence prevention measures. Let's do the same thing with crime and let's see if we can fix it. So either way, very interesting, but very exciting, very exciting <laughs> and to see Judge Janet. Yeah, I want to ask you about Judge Janet, too. But first, I want to talk to you. You know, I'm looking at this bill that you did with Chris Murphy. Can you just give us like the TLDR on that? Yeah. So this is the first bill that that I've introduced. It is called the Office of Gun Violence Prevention Act of 2023. It's quite a literal title for the bill, (laughs) because what it does is it creates a federal office of gun violence prevention. And did you know there is no one office in the federal government that works on gun violence every single day. It's actually split between multiple different departments and agencies that have different functions on this issue. It's the leading cause of death for children and has the least amount of money, dollars and effort in terms of research and data aggregation. So crazy. Exactly. So that's why most of the data we see on gun violence, that actually doesn't really come from the government. It comes from Every town for gun violence or Brady or these different organizations, which is great, but we need to put some sweat equity on the line here in getting this data. And then also, you know, this office would provide recommendations on how they feel like we could stop gun violence and, and work with municipal governments, countywide governments, Congress, et cetera. And so I hope that this can get bipartisan support because it's not gun policy. It's not a policy on guns. It's an office to help us be informed on it. Now, I'll, I understand that there probably will be some people who don't want the office because they understand that from an objective point of view, when you look at what's going on, the recommendations that might come out of it might not be in line with your politics. But I mean, we need we need to save lives. And so that's the bill. We're really excited about it. We introduced it with uh, Senator Chris Murphy. So it lives in both the House and the Senate. I saw you come up in the Washington Examiner, which is a GOP oppo dump shop basically and it was like (laughs) i mean washington examiner washington free beacon basically the same you know okay in my mind anyway i'm sure i'll get you know but yes basically and it was like republicans failed to appeal to generation z or whatever you guys are uh why do you think republicans can't organically appeal to young people I think it's because just young people, and I don't want to say every young person, but right. the vast majority of young people in this country are just not in line with their politics at all. I mean, what was it? Six, it was 60 or 70 percent of Gen Z voted for Democrats in this past midterm. That's a lot. And also studies are showing that as we're getting older, we're not getting more conservative like other generations have. And so I think it shows a, like a generational shift in our politics, even young conservatives hold more progressive ideology than their 
parents do. It's really interesting. I think, and I think we, part of it is the fact that, you know, what, what separates Generation Z from millennials and any other generation is that we've been completely immersed in this advanced technology since birth. So for m- many millennials, kind of this technology we have now came along and maybe like later teen years or like, you know, maybe when you're in middle school for Gen Z, it's like since the day you were born, this has been around. And uh, there's a lot of these people. I, I didn't have a phone until much later, but a lot of folks have phones like as soon as they are able to walk or <laughs> talk, you know, and so it's wild. I'll be walking around and see like a little toddler with a iphone better than mine i'm like oh but either way so but because of that you know we're open to all this information since a very young age and that includes a lot of the trauma you go in a room with people from different generations and you ask tell me defining moments for your generation no matter what your ideology is you'll hear the moon landing and post 9-11 and the country came together and etc and uh, you ask a member of generation z and you're going to hear Parkland and George Floyd and right. Breonna Taylor, like death, death, and death. And I think that trauma, that pool of trauma builds up in someone and builds up in a generation and they're kind of defined by it. And they demand a better world. They demand a world where black people aren't being, you know, killed on the streets that are unarmed and where, you know, we aren't being shot in our schools and where people have health care and you know, we're just kind of like, it's very basic, you know, and I think a lot of young people are just confused on why these things aren't already here. And obviously, there's a lot of reasons, but we want to be a part of the solution. And I think that's really exciting. That's why I'm actually, even though things can seem pretty gloomy, even though yesterday or not yesterday, Tuesday was a good day for campaigns. You know, you're in a state like Florida, things can seem pretty down. But I think time is on our side. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What's happening in Florida right now with the Democratic Party? I mean, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think um, so. I mean, there's a lot. Right. I mean, I, I you can't you can't talk about what's going on in Florida without bringing up Ron, Governor Ron DeSantis, because he really brings something to the table that I think just Florida has never seen before. And I think it's important. I mean, look at what's going on in the Florida State Legislature. This is like, I think this is possibly the worst session that the Florida Legislature has had in modern history. The bills that are coming out of them are all championed by the governor. We just passed a permitless carry bill, which allows people to carry any gun, any place, any person, anywhere. So you don't have to get a permit. There's a new bill that might pass that it makes it a felony to harbor a undocumented person and what that what they mean by that is you can't drive an undocumented person you can't have them over at your house or it's a felony i mean it's some of the most disgusting uh, you know and then not to mention all the attacks there's a new one that just came up too that makes a uh, a pride parade illegal if anyone if anyone there is dressed in drag it's horrible and i think with the democratic party i mean i kind of explained before you know, we have a shift of kind of a different tactics and style of politics. And I think the GOP has moved quickly into this kind of aggressive style of politics. Some would argue they've always had that, but like even more aggressive. And I think Democrats are still trying to figure out, like, are we still in this era of like backroom bipartisan deals or like going, you know, being on TV and completely, you know, lying about you the other side, which is what we see Republicans do all the time. And I'm not saying we need to go on TV and lie. But we need to be be aggressive truth tellers. And I think there's a lot of Democrats who are hesitant to, to get into that type of politics. That's why when I started defining what Ron DeSantis is as a fascist, like I on a ton, but I received some 
calls and texts from people who were saying like, hey, Max, that, you don't think that's helpful to us in Florida and this and that. And I'm just like, what do you want to do? Do you want to lay down and let him step on us? Because then the next election cycle, people see the boot mark on your face. And I'm not going to do that. And so either way, I think there's kind of a push and pull there. But we have a new party chair, Nikki Freed. And, you know, she's been out there and being aggressive. And but, you know, beyond the party chair, it's also the electeds and the organizers. And so we just have a lot of infrastructure work to do here in Florida. And on, it's going to take time. You know, I mean, we're, we're not going to flip Florida in one year or two years. But um, I think that the margin that we saw, that 20 point margin, I think that we can more than cut that in half this next cycle. And I, I think we can be, I think we can get back to being a real battleground state just here in the next couple cycles. Maxwell Frost, Congressman, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Junkfest. Jesse Cannon. What would you like a presumptive Republican nominee to not be truthing about? My top of my list might be World War Three. I think that when you are Donald Trump and the thing most people are worried about you doing is causing World War Three, perhaps it might be better not to all caps tweet about World War Three. <laughs> and just that, too. Like you just wrote World War Three. World War Three. In case you're wondering. I, I mean, Civil War right up there with World War Three, but like this is this is not good. What's interesting about this is that Donald Trump's truths no longer stir the conversation and he says crazy stuff like this and it doesn't make a ripple, which is good, but it's also bad because he is the Republican frontrunner for president in 2024. And that is why World War Three, all caps, is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.